126, 1 through 6, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on prayer, and specifically we're looking at the book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are very famously known as the prayer book of the Bible. So if you want to know what prayer is, if you want to learn how to pray, you need a teacher. Getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. And one of the things that happens if you get into the Psalms is you find out pretty quickly that no matter what you're going through in life, no matter what you're experiencing, there is a psalm, uh, and probably more than one, that describes that experience and helps you learn how to get through it. Um, and that's especially true with what we might call the darker emotions. You know, there are things that we all welcome, uh, things like love and joy and happiness and delight. We love to feel those things. But there are other emotions that are much more difficult to deal with, things like fear and anger or shame and guilt or grief or despair, or depression, to name a few. Um, the Psalms actually gives us a unique way of dealing with those emotions and those feelings. It's very different from the other ways that uh, are on offer to us in this world. So for instance, one very common way of dealing with feelings in our world is what we could call the traditional or the religious way, which says, deny your feelings. Uh, a lot of times, traditional religion, traditional cultures are very uncomfortable with uh, strong emotions, especially darker emotions, the uh, idea is that it's inappropriate to feel those things. We're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to be ashamed. So we just deny those feelings. We stuff them. We tamp them down. Don't allow ourselves to feel those things. The exact opposite of that is another way that's very common in our world, and that's the approach that we might um, call the contemporary secular approach. Uh, the modern secular culture we live in would say that uh, your feelings are everything. That ultimate truth is inside of you. And you can't listen to what other people say. You can't listen to what traditional authority structures say. You have to listen to your heart. You have to listen to your feelings. So modern secular culture would say that the most important thing is to listen to your heart, listen to your feelings, because... That's where ultimate truth is located, your feelings, and your feelings are your truth, and then you have to take your truth, and then you have to express them to the world around you. It's like the equivalent of an emotional mic drop. You know, you just dump them out there, right? Um, so religion says deny your feelings. Uh, contemporary culture says dump your feelings, but the Psalms give us a very unique way of dealing with our feelings. It says you don't deny them, you don't dump them, you pray them. You pray your feelings. Now this psalm that we just read, uh, the main focus of this psalm is tears. It's suffering. It says, you want to know what to do with your tears? Don't deny them. 
Don't dump them. Pray them. Now, what does that look like? Practically speaking, you know, uh, by the way, I'm not going to address the question of why does God allow evil and suffering in the world. We just did a whole sermon series right before this one in which we were examining the different objections and obstacles that people have to faith in God. And we specifically had a sermon where we looked at this question of evil and suffering. So if you want to know more about it from the kind of the theoretical standpoint, uh, you can go on our website or our podcast and listen to that sermon. This morning, I want to try and be as practical as possible. What do we actually do with our tears? This psalm says that we pray our tears. Now, what does that look like? I want to suggest three ways this psalm teaches us to pray our tears. It says we pray them through the lens of grace. We pray them into a vision uh, or a promise of God's glory, and, and we pray them into a walk of obedience. We pray our tears through the lens of grace, into the promise of glory, and into a walk of obedience, okay? First, we pray our tears through the lens of grace. Um, this psalm, six verses long, and the structure is very easy to see. The first three verses are all about some great joy in the people's lives. They say, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. So that last song we sang, and we are glad. That's, that's what these people are singing. Joy. There had been a great catastrophe in their life, a great... Um, uh, trouble and hardship and difficulty in their life, and the Lord had come through with a, a miraculous, wonderful deliverance of the people, and they're singing, we are glad, they're rejoicing in the first three verses. But then in the next three verses, the catastrophe has come back. In fact, you see, they use the very same language as verse 1. In verse 4, it says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. The catastrophe has come back, and these people are suffering tremendously. Again, they're weeping. Now, what does that mean for us? Why is this so important? One of the things um, I want us to notice about this is that it's very easy for us to think that when our lives are going well, that God must be pleased with us, and that if our lives are not going well, well, then God must be angry with us somehow. It's very easy to think that. So, for instance, there are psalms uh, you can read where it's very clear that there is some connection between the suffering that the people are going through and some sin uh, in their life. So you'll see psalms all the time where people will pray, God, we sinned, uh, we brought this on ourselves, um, help us, Lord, forgive us and deliver us again. You'll see psalms like that. In fact, uh, two of the psalms we've already looked at in this series are just like that. Uh, they are Psalms of David, the great king of Israel. And each of those Psalms described a time in David's life when he was suffering greatly because his son was trying to kill him. Uh, but we also saw that that situation, that suffering, those tears in his life, were in large measure due to the fact that he had um, committed adultery and murder and there was a lot of family dysfunction in his life. His actions had results in his life. So there are times in our life when it's very clear that, that, that the suffering and the tears we're going through have some connection to some sin or some rebellion or some problem in our life. Our actions do have results. But look at this psalm. There's no mention of sin in this psalm. There's no mention that they had done anything to anger God, and yet here they are suffering tremendously. What does this mean? It means you can't look at God through your tears. 
In other words, you can't look at the circumstances of your life, you know, whether or not your life is going well, and then determine on the basis of that whether or not God is pleased with you, whether or not God loves you. You can't look at the circumstances of your life and decide whether or not God is angry or mean or unjust just by looking at what's going on in your life. This psalm shows us that there can be suffering in your life that isn't necessarily connected, connected to some sin in your life. You can't look at God through your tears. But we do. Why? You know, there's a narrative in our world. It's not even just our culture. This is the default narrative of all humanity. And the narrative goes like this. It says, if you're a good person, you should expect a good life. But if you're a bad person, you should expect a bad life. Therefore, if you want a good life, you should be a good person. That is the default narrative of all humanity. Now, why is this so important? Think about it. If the reason you're being a good person is so that you'll have a good life or so that you can feel good about yourself, then you're not really being a good person. That's just selfishness dressed up in good deeds, right? So, for instance, um, there's a TV show. My wife actually, Jenny was telling me about this show. She said, you have to watch this show. Um, in fact, a couple of you told me about this show and said, Eric, you have to watch this show. So I did. Uh, it's called The Good Life. And it's about a woman named Eleanor who's, I mean, she's really not a very good person. Uh, in fact, she's kind of a bad person. In fact, she's kind of an awful person. <laughs> but she accidentally ends up in heaven, the good place. And that's the setting for the show. But really, the show revolves around one central question. Uh, the big question that the whole show is all about is this. What does it mean to be a good person? What does it really mean to be a good person? That's what the show's all about. In fact, it deals with a lot of really heavy-duty philosophical concepts. That, I mean, it talks about famous philosophers. It talks about things like moral philosophy and virtue ethics. And I can't deny I was really encouraged by that because we talk about these things all the time here at church. And I always feel like, is it too heady? Is it too abstract? Is it too intellectual? So it's really encouraging for me to know that there's a network television show out there talking about moral philosophy. Um, starring Ted Danson, nonetheless. <laughs> but there's a scene in one of the episodes, and I won't give away, uh, you know, what's going on in the show, but there's a scene in one episode where this woman, Eleanor, is talking with one of the other characters, and, um, and she's talking about how she's been trying to be a good person, but, but she just gave up. And here's how she describes what happened. She says, you know the problem with being a do-gooder? No one cares. I mean, some people care a little bit, those torpy little twerps at the environmental place. They care. But I was a good person for six months. That's like five years. And what did I get for it? I mean, it felt okay, but not as good as I thought it would. And at the end of the day, what did I really get for it? And her friend says, ah, see, now you're talking about moral dessert. And she says, yeah, wait, I am? What? And he says, moral desert is the concept that if you act with virtue, you deserve a reward. And she says, right. I mean, if I'm not going to get rewarded somehow with like a tiara or something, then why do good things? If I'm not going to get rewarded, why do good things? 
See, this show is saying the same thing that the Bible is saying, which is saying the same thing that this psalm is showing us, that if you're just a good person in order to get a good life or so that you can feel good about yourself, then you're not really being good. You're just, it's just selfishness dressed up in good deeds. In fact, the Christian version of this says, you know, if you're a good Christian, if you obey God, if you try really hard, then God will love you and bless you and take you to heaven when you die. If that's the case, you're not really serving God, you're just serving yourself. You're actually making the selfishness and the self-centeredness worse by doing that. So you can't look at the circumstances of your life, whether or not your life is going well, and then determine on the basis of that whether or not God loves you. You can't look at God through your tears. You know, um, this psalm is showing us that, that God's love and blessings um, come into your life, but God does not um, put his love and blessings in your life on the basis of your goodness. Neither does he withhold his love and blessings, blessings on the basis of your badness. God doesn't give you his love and blessings on the basis of your goodness, but neither does he withhold them on the basis of your badness. Do you know what that is? That's grace. Grace means that God's love and blessings and his power and his goodness, that those things come into your life not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of his grace. That's the gospel. It's the exact opposite of religion. It's the back, exact opposite of moral desert. It's grace. Friends, the presence of tears in your life is not proof that God doesn't love you. The very first thing we need to do here is learn to pray our tears through the lens of grace. Yes, there may be some sin in your life. Maybe there's some idol deep in your heart that God wants to deal with. Probably there is. But even if there's not and you're still suffering, our temptation is to get angry at God about it because we feel like we deserve a better life. But listen, if the only reason you were being a good person to begin with was so that God would bless you or give you a good life, then you never really were being a good person. You were just serving yourself. You were never serving God. Dear ones, grace means that we don't look at God through our tears. We don't look at our circumstances and therefore judge God on the basis of whether or not our life is going well. God might have other purposes for your suffering of which we are not aware. And that actually leads to our second point. We've just seen that we need to pray our tears through the lens of grace. But secondly, we need to pray our tears into the promise of glory. What's the main image in this psalm? You see it in verses 5 and 6. It's all centered around one primary metaphor. It says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So it, it's very simple, but incredibly profound. This image is telling us that there's a way to pray your tears that actually leads to joy and fruitfulness in your life. So just as a farmer would go out into a field and he would take seeds and, and sow them into the ground and water them and they would grow up into a harvest of fruit. In the same way, the psalm is saying that your tears can be seeds of something good and beautiful in your life. Your tears can be seeds that produce a harvest of joy and fruitfulness in your life. But you have to sow them. You have to plant them. You can't waste them. That's the image, all right? Because remember what I said at the beginning. We always have a choice what to do with our tears. One option is to deny them. You stuff them. That would be like the farmer who never um, takes the seeds out of the bag and puts them in the ground. 
The other option is, is you dump your tears. You, you indulge in them. You just pour them out. That would be like the farmer who just dumps all the seeds out in one place instead of sowing them into the field. In either case, those seeds will never bear a harvest. The only way the seeds will bear a harvest is if we actually plant them, if you sow them, if you pray your tears so that instead of denying them, instead of dumping them, we actually sow our tears into this field of harvest. Now, what does that actually mean? Here's what it means. It means that your tears actually have the power to produce joy and fruitfulness in your life. Your tears actually have the power to produce joy and fruitfulness in your life. In fact, there's a promise embedded in this psalm. It's difficult to see because of our translation. It's very hard to translate um, this verse. But when it says, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, the literal translation of what it says there is something like, they will surely return with songs of joy. Or they will doubtless return with songs of joy. Some translations actually um, put that in there. They will surely return with songs of joy. It doesn't say might return. It says they surely will return with songs of joy. There's a promise there. It says that if you pray your tears, the joy is promised. That's amazing. In fact, it's pretty similar to something the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 17, he says, For our slight momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our slight momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, some of you might say, Well, you know, when I look at my afflictions, I would hardly call them slight and momentary. And I know some of you and what you're going through, and I would probably agree with you, they don't feel slight and momentary. But, but that's exactly what Paul is saying they are in comparison with the glory God has in store for us. That in comparison with the glory that God wants to bring into our lives, our afflictions, our sufferings at this time really are slight and momentary. And by the way, Paul would know what he's talking about. He, he has, you know, the, the, the receipts to ha- be able to say something about this because very few people suffered more than the Apostle Paul. Okay, he knows what he's talking about. He says the affliction is actually producing the glory. The affliction is actually producing the joy and the fruitfulness in your life. In fact, that word glory is a very important word. In the Bible, the word glory means weight. It's not just light like luminescence. It's, it means weight. It means substance. It means that you become a person of character and integrity. It means that you become more real. Paul is saying that that the suffering, the affliction, the tears, this psalm is saying that those things actually have the power to produce character and substance in our life and that one of the main ways you become a person of substance is through suffering, but it's not automatic. You know, sometimes suffering makes people hard and bitter. Again, we have a choice about what we're going to do with our tears. You can deny them, you can dump them, But if you do either of those things, it will never produce the harvest of joy and fruitfulness in our life that God wants. If you do that, actually what happens is you'll end up slipping further and further into a quagmire of bitterness and resentment, uh, of coldness, of hardness of heart. You actually end up becoming more self-absorbed, more self-centered, more shallow. You don't become a person of substance. The only way that happens is if you pray your tears, if you sow them into the promise of glory that God has for your life. Now, side note, 
This is a slow process most of the time. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, again, what does the image show us? It's seed. How long does it take for a seed to grow up? A long time. In fact, the ultimate final revelation of God's glory and purposes in your life doesn't happen until you die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. But the promise is no less real because it's lengthy. God's promise is that if you pray your tears, the suffering actually has the power to produce joy and fruitfulness and glory in your life. One of my favorite um, illustrations of this comes from a conversation between the Velveteen Rabbit and the Skin Horse. Did you ever read that little children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit? It's pretty old. Uh, it's about a group of toys that live in a children's nursery. Uh, and the Velveteen Rabbit is the new kid on the block. And he gets into a conversation at the very beginning of the book with the skin horse, who's this wise old toy horse that has lived in the nursery for many, many years. And the, and the rabbit asks the horse at the beginning, he says, what is real? And the, the skin horse says this. He says, real isn't how you were made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. And the rabbit asks, does it hurt? And the horse says, sometimes. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. And you get all loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Friends, in God's economy, your suffering actually has the power to make you real, to make you more a person of character, integrity, and substance. God, listen, there may be all kinds of things that God may or may not be doing with the suffering in your life, but there's one thing God always wants to do with the suffering in your life. He always, always wants to make you more into a person of glory and joy and substance and fruitfulness. But in order for that to happen, you have to pray your tears into this vision of glory that he has for you. Now, how does that happen? What does that actually look like? There are many ways that we do this, but let me give you one very simple way. We're in a series on the Psalms. I would just say, read one Psalm every day. I usually do this at night before I go to bed. It doesn't take very long because most of the Psalms are actually pretty short. But just open your Bible once every single day and, and read one of the Psalms. But turn the Psalm into a prayer because that's what they are. Read it out loud and, and pray the Psalm as you're actually reading it. What happens if you do that is that as you do that day after day after week after week after year after year after decade after decade is these things shape you. The Psalms actually give you a vocabulary. They give you a grammar. They begin to have a shaping effect on your life. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. Whatever shapes your heart determines the direction of your life. And here's the reality. Your heart is already being shaped by something. You are being shaped by something already. When you pray the Psalms, one of the things that happens is it has a shaping effect on your life. It begins to press God's vision of glory deeper and deeper into your life so that it begins to shape and to form your imagination, your heart, your life, so that you actually get a greater vision of God's glory, his vision of glory for you in your life. In fact, I want to add to what I said earlier. Uh, we said you can't look at God through your tears. 
right? You can't look at the circumstances of your life, whether or not your life is going well, and then on the basis of that, determine whether or not God loves you. You can't look at God through your tears. You have to look at your tears through God. The Psalms help you to do that. Instead of looking at God through the circumstances of your life, you look at the circumstances of your life through God. Praying the Psalms helps you learn how to do that. You can't look at God through your tears. You have to look at your tears through God. Praying the Psalms helps you to do that. You pray your tears through the lens of grace. You pray your tears through the promise or into the promise of glory. But that leads to the last thing we need to do, and it's the hardest of all. We pray our tears through the lens of grace. We pray our tears into the promise of glory. But lastly, we pray our tears into a, a walk of obedience. I, I said a moment ago that, you know, suffering doesn't automatically produce glory in your life. There's a promise in the psalm. Those who go forth weeping will surely come with songs of joy. That's a promise. But how does that promise happen? Here's how. So remember what I said about verse 6. I said, you know, a literal translation would be those who go forth weeping will surely return with songs of joy. Now, I have a confession to make. I only translated half of that verse literally. If we were going to translate the whole thing literally, here's what it's really saying. Those who surely go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will surely return with songs of joy, bearing, carrying their sheaves with them. It says those who surely go out weeping will surely return with songs of joy. In other words, the only way to return with joy is to go out weeping. In, or, in order to surely return, you have to surely go out. Now, what does that mean? That phrase, go out, is actually the Hebrew word walk. And in the Bible, your walk, that's your way of life. That's the way you live. Your walk is, is those daily habitual patterns that shape your life, that shape every aspect of your life. This psalm is saying that you have to go out. You have to walk surely. You have to walk intentionally. If I could put it this way, and I will, you have to walk obediently. And I know that's kind of a bummer note to strike, um, especially at the end of a sermon on suffering. You know, whenever we're talking about suffering, we always want to know, hey, where's the comfort? Where's the hope? Where's the encouragement? Come on, pastor, that's what I want. Give me the hope and the encouragement. Why do we have to talk about obedience? Here's why this is so important. When you're going through suffering, the greater the suffering is, the greater our instinct to try to get out of the suffering. We just want to get out of it. The last thing we want to do, I mean, especially when you're going through times of suffering, and then God calls you to, to walk according to his commands, according to his way of life that he's prescribed for you. A lot of times when you're going through suffering, it feels like walking according to God's commands actually feels like it's leading you deeper into suffering, deeper into darkness. And we don't want to go deeper into it. We want to get out of it. A lot of times it's, it's because we're doing things the way God's told us to do them that we're in that suffering to begin with and we just don't want to be there. We'd rather take an easier, softer way. But if we do that, this psalm is saying that you cheat yourself out of the joy and the fruitfulness and the glory that God wants for you. Now, let me take the edge off this just a little bit. I know that obedience is a hard word. It's a strong word. But you know, obedience just means trust. Obedience means, look, if you understood all of God's reasons for everything he asks you to do, then it wouldn't be obedience anymore. It would be agreement. 
Obedience means that you trust and you follow God, even when you don't understand what he's telling you to do, and even when he's leading you seemingly deeper into the darkness and into the suffering. One of my favorite um, illustrations of this is from the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. Uh, In one of the books, there's a little boy named Diggory. It's in The Magician's Nephew is the name of that book. Diggory is a little boy whose mother is sick and about to die. He's got some tears in his life. Um, And somehow, magically, he finds his way into the kingdom of Narnia. Now, Narnia is a magical world that's created and ruled by this great lion, Aslan. And Aslan is really Jesus. And so Diggory finds his way into Narnia on the very day that Narnia is being created by Aslan. But because of some selfishness, because of some carelessness on his part, Diggory accidentally ends up bringing an evil witch with him into Narnia on the very day of its creation. And as a result of that, uh, its first day of existence, Narnia is plunged into great danger because this witch has entered the kingdom. So Aslan looks at Diggory and he says, I'm going to send you on a mission. I'm going to send you on a journey, Diggory, to uh, far beyond the snowy mountains, to a secret hill in the middle of a green valley. And on top of that hill, there's a tree filled with silver apples. And I want you to take one of those silver apples and bring it back with you here to Narnia. And we'll plant it in the ground and it will grow up into a tree that will protect Narnia for many years to come from the danger that has entered into Narnia because of you, Diggory. Now, Diggory is conflicted about this because he just wants Aslan to heal his mother. And he he knows that if he obeys Aslan, he's essentially abandoning his mother to death. And yet he goes on this mission. In fact, on top of that, he gets to the tree and the witch is actually waiting there for him. And, And when he gets there, she says to him, Diggory, you should take one of these apples and instead of bringing it back to Aslan, you should you should use your magic and get back home and use the apple to save your mother. See, the temptation to the easier, softer way, the shortcut. And Diggory refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to obey Aslan. And he brings the apple back to Narnia. They plant it in the ground, and and almost immediately this tree sprouts up filled with all kinds of beautiful silver apples, and it's protecting Narnia. But Diggory tells Aslan what happened, how the witch had wanted him to take one of the apples and use it to go back home and save his mother. And here's what Aslan says to him. He says, understand that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both of you, both you and she would have looked back and said, it would have been better to die in that illness. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. It will not in your world give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck one of the apples from the tree. See, the, the temptation for Diggory was to look at Aslan through his tears. To say, Aslan doesn't care about me. Aslan doesn't care about my mother. What's the harm in me taking one of these apples and, and solving this problem myself? See, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't look at Aslan through his tears. He looks at his tears through Aslan. How are we going to do the same thing? How are we going to not look at God through our tears, but actually look at our tears through God? How are we going to actually look at our tears as seeds that have the power to produce a harvest of joy and fruitfulness in our life? How are we going to do that? There's only one way. You have to see that Jesus is the ultimate seed. 
Because remember, everything we've just seen up until this point, we have to pray our tears through the lens of grace. That means you can't look at God through your tears. You can't look at your circumstances and determine whether or not God loves you on the basis of whether or not your life is going well. But how can you know that's true? The presence of suffering in your life does not prove that God does not love you. But how do we know that's true? Jesus is the proof of that. Because look at Jesus. No one lived a better life than Jesus. No one was a better person than Jesus. And yet no one had a worse life than Jesus. He lived a life full of poverty, oppression, rejection, abandonment, persecution, abuse, and mockery and scorn. And then he ended up dying the most painful, horrible, and humiliating death it was possible to die in that world. And yet no one could ever look at Jesus and say that he wasn't a good person. You could never look at Jesus and say that God did not love him. Jesus is proof that the presence of suffering in your life does not prove that God does not love you. You can pray your tears through the lens of grace when you look at Jesus. But secondly, how are we going to pray our tears into God's promise of glory for our life? Because remember what we said, the tears are seeds that go into the ground and actually produce the joy. How does that happen? How does that work? You know, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, they thought that was the end of the story, right? When they put him in the ground, no one would have ever thought that Jesus was going to get up out of the ground in three days, but he did. Jesus went into the ground. He was the ultimate seed. Jesus was the true seed that went into the ground so that he could produce a harvest of joy and fruitfulness and glory in your life. And it's not just that the joy and the new life and the salvation come into our life in spite of Jesus' suffering. Those things come into your life because of his suffering. It's because of his tears. Because on the night before he died, Jesus went to a garden and and he prayed. He said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. At, At that point in Jesus' life, his eyes were so full of tears, his heart was so full of sorrow that he said, it feels like I'm gonna die right now. Nobody knows tears and grief like Jesus. And yet, on the cross, Jesus' grief led to your glory. His sorrow was turned into your salvation. His tears were turned into your joy. That happened because of Jesus dying on the cross. It's not in spite of his suffering. It's because of the suffering and the tears, which means, lastly, that you can pray your tears into a walk of obedience. Because when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed. His eyes were full of tears, and he prayed to God. He said, Father, isn't there any other way? Do I really have to walk this road of obedience? Do I really have to walk this road to the cross, into the darkness, into the suffering? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus' obedience led him straight into the jaws of death so that he could produce a life of obedience and glory and beauty and joy in your life. Friends, there is no darkness that God will ever call you to walk through. There is no sorrow that he will ever call you to embrace. There is no danger that he will ever put before you that he has not already experienced infinitely more on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let that shape your tears. Don't look at God through your tears. Look at your tears through God. Look at your tears through the cross. That will help you to pray your tears through the lens of grace into the promise of glory and into a walk of obedience. Let's pray.